Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce to today's speaker, Garrett Gruner. Um, and um, I think I'd like to actually thank uh, Steve Beck right here. Steve, just raise your hand for uh, making the introduction to our classroom um, for Garrett today. Um, uh, Garrett has a large number of tremendous accomplishments, one of which I'd say maybe even the most important is that he's an alumni of the University of California, Berkeley. Go there. In addition to that, that's a very good start. In addition to that, he's also a serial entrepreneur. He started uh, his first company in 1982, which is uh, Virtual Microsystems, um, the probably more well-known branded company that you would know uh, was called Ask, Ask Jeeves and is called Ask.com today. Uh, he's also an investor and partner um, in uh, Alta Partners. So he's been both on the entrepreneurial side as well as on the investor side. Um, and accordingly, he's on a number of boards, one of which it, or, or these boards include uh, N-Circle, uh, Network Security, Accelerated, and uh, Nanomics, uh, Nanomics, where he was actually um, uh, the acting CEO, or maybe the original CEO and acting CEO, um, and moving to the board role. Uh, he's also on the board of the Goldman School of Public Policy, uh, connecting back to the university still. So with all this, uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce you. Uh, thanks. The stage is yours. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be with you here today in Berkeley. Uh, I've spent an awful lot of my career either at Berkeley, uh, sort of around Berkeley, doing deals that involve Berkeley, or just sort of hanging out. Um, and uh, it's also a, a real pleasure to be um, engaged with a lot of engineers, or soon-to-be engineers. Uh, I've spent a lot of my career working with engineers uh, and managing them and um, sort of occasionally pretending to, you know, do some engineering myself, certainly a lot of engineering management. Anyway, um, uh, and, and I, for one, very much appreciate what you do and what you're going to be doing. And a lot of this talk is essentially to encourage you along this entrepreneurial path uh, because I think it's critical for our country um, and uh, it's, I think, where a lot of um, our wealth comes from. Um, so what I'm going to do today is um, talk about, uh, I'm going to try to put this in a little bit of context. Um, and then I'm going to discuss my own history a bit. I'm going to run through my resume, um, ending up at um, Nanomics, where I'm currently uh, acting as CEO. Um, and I'm going to pause there a little bit to kind of show you their proposition. Um, and then I'm going to uh, end with some comments on public policy. Um, so let's get started. So I want to start with something that I'm sure you've seen many, many times, um, which is uh, a picture of Moore's Law. And um, this picture, which begins in 1971, which is a little before, I, was, I graduated from Berkeley in 1977. Um, 
shows the projection through today. So it's 40 years of Moore's Law, or to follow the scale there, about um, a million X uh, improvement in terms of the density of transistors, which is how it's usually expressed. But I like to think of it in a slightly different way, which is um, this is the picture in our time, to some degree, of the expansion of the space, the technical space, that entrepreneurs work in that this million-fold improvement has created a vast array of, of, of opportunities. Um, and, you know, if you look, if you read Brian Arthur, um, he talks about technology development as basically a sort of combinatorial evolutionary process in which sort of technology kind of develops itself. Um, but actually, we know that isn't the case. Technology is developed by engineers, and it's, um, it's made relevant by entrepreneurs. And so it's the exploration of that space which is critical, and the key element of it is entrepreneurship. Um, oops. Let's try that again. This is the original paper um, that uh, Gordon Moore had on, um, uh, on Moore's Law. And I just want to draw your attention to um, the things he suggested as applications. So we always focus on the numbers and on the sort of regularity of it. But actually, I think this is a, a much more interesting and better call. He called home computers, read 1978 or 1976, uh, personal portable communications equipment, read the 80s, and automatic controls for automobiles, read maybe 2011 or slightly yet to come. Um, there's another way to think about it, which is how this has changed the economics of, of what people do. Uh, we're, we're used to the fact that sort of economies grow at you know, roughly 3%, more if you're China, less if you're Greece at the moment, I guess. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, the long-term expansion of economies, you roughly think of in that sense. But actually, that isn't quite right either. The, uh, what's really happening is an enormous expansion in capabilities and an accounting effort to sort of keep track of it. So let me just ask you a question here. Think for a moment, how long do you think it, it takes the average person, does it, do they have to work in order to buy an hour of reading light? And it's an interesting question because it combines the current economics, what average people today make, um, and then I'd like you to think about the same question in 1800. So now you have a, both a historical economics question and an historical technical question. Well, I'll just run a little clip here which answers it. But uh, think about what your answer might be for this. Whoops. Oh, well, it looks like we don't uh, have... The reading uh, light, audio. if you're on the average ah. wage in Britain today, and the answer is about half a second. Back in 1950, you would have had to work for eight seconds on the average wage to acquire that much light. And that's seven and a half seconds of prosperity that you've gained since 1950, as it were, because that's seven and a half seconds in which you can do something else or you can acquire, acquire another good or service. And back in 1880, it would have been 15 minutes to earn that amount of light on the average wage. Back in 1800, you'd have had to work six hours to earn a candle that could burn for an hour. In other words, the average person on the average wage could not afford a candle. In yeah, he, what he was ending there was the average person couldn't afford a candle in 1800. And that's not a small thing, because what that allowed people to do was to work in the night, to learn in the night, 
and to grow um, their wealth and to grow their capabilities and to provide for their children and so on and so forth. So it's this exploration of this technical space which leads to these compounded increases in wealth. And that's what I think entrepreneurship is fundamentally about. Um, and it's very timely today. Um, you know, I, you folks maybe are, I don't know, you may be living this or you may be thinking about living it, but um, as, as we're all aware, things are difficult out there. Uh, this is a graph from Laura Tyson here at UC Berkeley, um, and it shows where we are in terms of jobs vis-a-vis -vis where we were prior to the, uh, the financial crisis, and the straight lines are respectively how long it will take us to get just back to where we were if you take the, um, the, best, uh, the best year, so the blue line is the best year in the 2000s. So take the, very, the, the rate of growth of jobs in the best year in the 2000s. In fact, I think it's the best month in the 2000s. It's going to take us until sometime in two, 2024 to get back to where we were. If you take the best, um, the green line is the, uh, the best month in the 1990s, and so on and so forth. Um, my point here is that uh, entrepreneurship is not only important, it's critical today in terms of the U.S. economy and the economies in general recovering. Okay, so let me uh, talk a little bit about me. Um, and actually, I'm now going to talk about my resume, so I'm going to talk about me a lot. Um, by the way, I'm going to try to get through this entire talk in 30 minutes so, or 30 or 40 minutes so that we have maybe 15 minutes for questions. Um, the, um, uh, one thing my, uh, my mother used to say to us over and over again, I don't know if it's true or not, but she, she certainly said it plenty of times, was that we moved to California for the University of California. And, um, you know, back when I was, uh, back when I and my wife, who's somewhere out here in the uh, audience, were um, going to UC, it was $212 a quarter, which I think is a little different than what you're paying today. Um, and uh, it was explicitly designed to encourage technical development in California and entrepreneurship in California. It's been a spectacular success. And what we're doing now is writing down that, that asset. So um, I hope in any political context you have that you make the point that not only that, that, that your future wealth that you will be generating is in largely, or at least in, in, in some large measure, due to this institution, and that we need to fight for, um, for, to reinvest in, in it. Um, I'm not an engineer. I mentioned that, uh, I mentioned that earlier. Actually, I'm a social science major. What I did was I focused on uh, public, uh, public policy, especially related to technology policy. And I think in some sense that's been very helpful to me in, in terms of what I call future sight. Um, the ability to kind of look at the white spaces where things don't yet exist, which is where, another way of saying the entrepreneurial opportunities. Um, so I might encourage you guys to take a few... Uh, uh, social science classes along with your engineering. Um, I'm also a science fiction fan, and I think that's essentially the literature of future possibilities. Um, another thing to think about. Many of your previous speakers are either friends of mine, people that I have backed as, in my capacity as a venture capitalist, people who have backed me, um, or uh, folks that I've worked together with, and so on and so forth. So uh, Steve Beck, who's out here, uh, Jerry Fiddler, who's sitting right next to him, Nat Goldhaber, who was one of your speakers last year, and Roger Strauch, who you'll be hearing from in three weeks, and there are actually um, more who are involved in this program. 
Uh, and I think that that goes to the value of what's called clusters. Um, that um, the, I've been spoken in a number of places throughout the world um, in which they were trying to replicate what we have here in the Silicon Valley. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, the flip side of that is once you have one going, the last thing you want to do is uh, sort of kill the goose that laid the golden egg. So again, it goes to my point of reinvesting in the university. So I've already talked a little bit about my experience here at UC Berkeley. Um, after graduating, I went to work for a company called Technocron. Um, Technocron, I think, no longer exists, but it was located a half a block off of Oxford um, here, in, here in Berkeley. And the chairman cited it a half a block from Berkeley, so he claimed, um, because Berkeley was the most technically advanced university in the country with the least economic exploitation. Um, and so he put it as close to the campus as he possibly could. Um, and what they did was, was actually kind of interesting. The, um, it was, this was a 70s era company and they had essentially an alternate approach to venture capital because essentially there wasn't very much venture capital at that time. So um, uh, Harvey, that was the name of the chairman, literally had a uh, sign on his desk which faced whoever he was talking to that said, career, uh, that, that said overhead is not a career opportunity. And the reason for that was that the, the entire business model was you go out and you get contracts from customers to do something exotic for them and um, they paid the freight and eventually something was developed and then you moved on to the next client. So essentially it was a combination of consulting and engineering development. And it ended up spinning off about $2 billion worth of companies. It was actually um, extraordinarily successful, some of which are still public companies to this day. And I think it's, it's interesting um, on a couple of levels. Um, the first is that um, it taught me, it taught everybody who, Technocrom was sort of a school of, of, of um, hard knocks. It taught everybody who went through that place the importance of listening to customers, which I think is valuable in every entrepreneurial sort of circumstance. I'm going to, as I go through this talk, list a couple of different things that I have learned from these different companies. Um, it's not a complete list, but anyway, there are a number of things that I thought were useful. Um, and the other point that he made was, if something's really worthwhile, there's somebody out there in the world who will pay for it. Um, and a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we, be, you know, we sort of believe our own exhaust. You know, we, we, we become so involved in a, a project, we become convinced that we're right and it doesn't really matter if anybody agrees with us. Well, of course it does matter if the company is going to be successful. And while this isn't the only way to be successful, it's a good thing to think about. It's especially a good thing to think about in times when venture capital is, um, is tougher to find. I left um, Technocron to start my own, or the first, my first company, which was uh, called Virtual Microsystems. And what we were doing there was what would be now, uh, would be called internetworking, essentially linking, uh, allowing people who had what were then large computers um, to have a virtual um, uh, personal computer space um, that was manageable by the, uh, you know, the then IT of that time. Um, so big companies liked it as a way to sort of be able to deal with personal computing without having to actually allow personal computers to, um, to proliferate. It was a losing cause, um, what the IT guys were trying to do, but it provided an entrepreneurial opportunity for us. 
And um, we built up this company, we sold it, and um, it was uh, a success, both for me and for the venture capitalists that I was working with at the time. The, the part of the story that I want to draw out on uh, here is um, first not to be afraid of venture capitalists. The way I, I got that first company financed was I literally took the virtu virtu venture capital directory and I had, I, not, I had met one of these guys before. I hadn't a clue what they were like. I hadn't a clue what they cared about. Um, but I started with A and I figured I'd burn through a few of them and I would kind of make my mistakes and then sooner or later I'd get serious about it. Well, actually, it's an even better story than that. You'll, you'll find out. So um, uh, it turned out the first person who en en uh, answered the phone was um, uh, in a firm. Their fund was called Alta. It was, the firm was Burig and Deliage. Uh, the person who answered the, firm, the phone was Jean Deliage. And um, I never got to whatever was the next one in the directory. So he, he funded the company, and that was that. Um, but what I've since learned is that um, you, know, you, you don't want to be afraid of these guys, but the other thing you want to do is do your homework because you're going to be living with them if you're successful for a long time. In my case, for uh, 30 years. Um, the other thing I learned out of virtual microsystems was the difference between products and projects. Um, you know, as I said, what Technicron taught was the value of projects, that get somebody to finance it, don't worry about it as a product. Just worry about that everything you did was profitable. What VMI taught me was what it really takes to make a product, which is documentation, the ability to support things, that it's robust in the first place, that it can be operated by mortals, and so on and so forth. A whole lot of lessons about the difficult things that are actually involved in making a real product. Okay, the next, uh, um, after uh, Virtual Microsystems was sold, I spent some time doing consulting, which is a euphemism for not knowing what you want to do next. Um, I actually did some fun consulting. I worked on the space shuttle for a while and so on, but mostly it was not knowing. Um, but then I uh, began work on a project which became Ask Jeeves and which is now called Ask.com. Um, Ask Jeeves was, um, so this work was done in, it began in 1991, so I like to think of it as a 15-year overnight success story. Um, it, um, when, when we began the work, it was, uh, there literally wasn't yet a commercial internet. So Mosaic hadn't happened, the web hadn't happened, um, but there was certainly computer internetworking, and there were a lot of what we called BBSs at the time, and those things were connected up, and there were more of them by the day. And my theory was, this was the beginning of the emergence of the national net. And I, I mentioned earlier, to me, the importance of science fiction. I had seen the national net many times in science fiction. Um, nobody had yet seen it in reality, although I actually saw the ARPANET back in um, 73, I guess, when I was at UCSD. Um, but um, what was clear to me was that this national net, whatever form it ended up taking, was going to be a critical uh, nexus of, of much of the economic activity in this, in this country or in this world. Um, so that was point one. Point two was that people were going to need to find things. And the point three was that they were going to want it to be easy to find things. And so the idea of Jeeves was to combine search, um, what we thought of as vectors to specific things, types of information that they were more likely to want than other things. Um, 
and uh, a natural language interface because the thinking was, and I think, well, I'm not sure this turned out to be true or not, but anyway, that, that um, search as it was done at that time was just too complicated and mortals weren't going to want to do it. The Butler image then came from the, um, uh, the fact that we wanted to make it as friendly as possible with peop for people. We started off with the possible name of concierge, and we decided most people didn't know what a concierge was, so we went with the butler, and then the butler that most people knew was Jeeves, and hence asked Jeeves. Um, my partner, uh, David Worth, I did the uh, initial sort of demo of it, and then my partner, David Worthen, picked, up it, uh, picked it up and actually turned it into a real system, and um, it went live sometime in the mid-90s. Um, in 1999, the company went public, and my wife, again, who was here, was the general counsel. Uh, that was, at the time, the third largest run-up of any internet IPO, or maybe any, any IPO in history. Um, the, it was originally priced at 14. The first trade was at 60. It eventually went to 195. It then went down to 75 cents. It rattled along at 75 cents for a while, and we eventually sold the company for about $2 billion. Um, as a, it probably defined the ups and downs of that period, the total craziness of the, of the internet era. Um, and I can tell you more about that if you want to know. But um, anyway, it was fun. It was certainly fun. And I think um, I'm very proud of the fact that even to this day, uh, ask.com is, I think, the fourth largest search engine uh, in the United States. So a few things that I learned from that. Um, first of all, uh, choose a quality problem. Um, you know, the way I like to think about it is that search is the function provided by the Oracle. Uh, and people have been going to the Oracle for a long, long time. And they're going to continue to do that. Uh, and so there was no question that ask uh, or search in general uh, was something that was going to be a very important piece of real estate and you know doing it right um, you know could be could be a very good thing the other thing is the um, the importance of marketing uh, I don't think there's been a single large success in the internet space that has gotten there initially from marketing um, they almost all have actually grown virally and that has I think largely to do with the expense of doing marketing to such a vast public but once you've gotten some traction doing marketing well can make an extraordinary difference, and it certainly did in the ask, um, uh, for ask. But the, um, you've got to then deliver on the, on the brand promise. And I think the reason why it's fourth rather than first is because in the end, the, um, you know, we bought a variety of companies to add to our technology, but we didn't buy the right one. And um, that, you know, in the end, technology really matters. It isn't the only thing that matters, but it certainly matters a lot. So, while I was, um, uh, as I was doing the initial work on Ask Jeeves, um, I was um, solicited by um, Jean Deliage um, uh, to um, join. Um, then Burrigan Deliage, the venture capital firm which had fin financed virtual microsystems as a partner, I told them, well, that sounds great and it's something I would like to do, but um, uh, I'm working on this little project on the side. You can invest in it if you want, but I'm going to continue to do it. So they never, alas, invested. Uh, Ask Jeeves went on its trajectory, and I joined Burrigan as a, a venture capitalist for, as my day job. Um, I'd like to pause for just a second and uh, remember my partner, um, Jean, passed away this year. 
Uh, he was my friend and he was my partner and he was my mentor and he, he affected so many different elements of my life. Um, and he was also a lion in the, in, the, uh, in the world of venture capital. He literally wrote the only check for uh, Chiron and wrote the initial check for Genentech uh, along with an incredible raft of, um, of life science companies, including um, Plexicon here in Berkeley, which we just sold this year for about a billion, um, do, which has come up with an ex extraordinary treatment for uh, melanoma. Um, anyway, Jean was one of the great guys in, in venture capital. So, um, a few things that I've learned out of the uh, Alta experience, and I've literally been involved in probably 20 different companies. There are a lot of lessons. And Alta now has, I think, 145 different life science companies that we're involved in. So, there are many stories there. But if Jean were here, he would insist that I have this as the first bullet, which is that in the end, venture capital is all about teams, and specifically all about CEOs. If you get that choice right, everything else gets a lot easier. Um, and if you get it wrong, um, you know, is usually uh, really sort of a series of unfortunate events. Um, what I've learned now being the, on the board of many of these companies is that this style of entrepreneurial management, especially from the board level, is mostly about enforcing schedule um, and um, secondarily about enforcing budget. Um, and um, that there's only very few things on the board that you can really know. I mean, I'm always impressed by how little actually board members know about what's going on inside the companies. So you've got to focus on a few key dashboard elements. And then finally, you've heard over and over again probably that the venture capital formula is that uh, you're going to invest in 10 companies, you know, five or six of them are going to go out of business, three are going to be singles or doubles, and one of them is hopefully going to be uh, a real success. And then people proceed to only talk about the success. But what that means is that five or six of them, things that you care very deeply about and that the entrepreneurs care very deeply about, are going to fail. And um, that's both hard as a venture capitalist, it's certainly hard as an entrepreneur, but you know, it's an important, what you have to realize is it's an important part of the evolutionary process. It's an important part of why this makes sense and why it makes sense to invest in entrepreneurs who have been through that process of failure in the past. And I think that's something that's uh, unique in American venture capital sort of culture. Okay, um, these days I'm primarily investing on my own. Um, so I continue to be a managing partner at Alta, but all the new things that I'm doing, I'm doing on my own. And um, here's a list of a few of them. Um, I'm not going to go through these in any great detail. You heard from Jerry Fiddler about Solozyme and probably from Roger even more. Um, StubHub, I hope you're a user of, uh, but it's now sold. Um, but I'm going to talk about Nanomics, which I am currently CEO of. So um, the corporate history of Nanomics is interesting. Um, it was founded by, it was um, invested in initially by Alta. It's a spin out out of UC Berkeley. It was founded as a nanotechnology company. And over the 10 years of its existence, we've now focused it on point of care diagnostics. The reason for that, and I'm going to do a little bit now the sort of spiel for nanomics, um, is that um, what we've built are exquisitely sensitive sensors based upon carbon nanotubes. And um, the, what we found was the best use of that is in what people call point-of-care diagnostics, 
which is essentially doing blood tests for specific conditions right next to the patient. Today, the, uh, if, you, if I had a heart attack right now, they'd take me off to Alta Bates, and the first thing they do is a test of my blood. They'd send the blood sample down to the basement, and down there, there's a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar machine that does a good job of finding out whether sp certain specific proteins are now in my blood that indicates that I'm having a heart attack. If um, uh, in the emergency room at Alta Bates, they might have a $10,000 machine, what I call one of the mini-computers, um, that is an order of magnitude less sensitive than the thing in the basement, but they get the answer sooner. What we're building is essentially the smartphone, or PC, of diagnostics, where you'd get the same level of sensitivity as you have in the device that's down in the basement, but um, you'd get it for two orders of magnitude less cost. So instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars, $1,000 or something of that sort. And you pick up the ability to get it much faster, 10 minutes as opposed to an hour. Uh, and, you pick, and you pick up the benefit of portability. So those are our, our key, three key benefits. This is what our cartridge looks like. Um, the, the carbon nanotubes are in that. The whole thing is designed to be just a couple of bucks. And you put the blood sample into it, and then you throw it away. Um, I've got in a little video here. Nearly 30 million on, um, people will experience benefits, symptoms but I think of a I'm going to skip this in the, in the interest of time. If anybody wants to see it after the, the majority uh, of these after I finish, I'd be happy to show it to you. The bottom line here is that there are a lot of folks who have cardiac events. Hence, it's a large market, um, literally, uh, you know, over a billion dollars today. And more importantly, what we can run on this is all of the diagnostic tests. So in addition to the cardiac area, we can use it for all the things that are currently done in um, diagnostic medicine. And that has big implications not only here in the US, but in the developing world. So one lesson that I can take away from genomics, thank you. Um, one lesson I can take away from genomics is that good projects now can take longer than the venture capital horizon. Venture capitalists work on a 10-year clock. We've got to give the money back to the guys who gave it to us, in theory, 10 years after they give it to us. If projects take longer than 10 years, guess what? You've got an issue. Um, so um, this is um, a, sort of an unresolved problem in the venture industry, uh, I think especially as we do more and more aggressive things like nanomics. So this is the... Um, um, the, the various things in my resume that I've mentioned. What I'd like to do now is draw a couple of larger lessons from this that I think are more in the, in the public policy domain. Um, some of this stuff is taken, by the way, from a recent ebook um, called The Race Against the Machine, which I would recommend. So the point that this guy makes is that um, technology is getting better at Moore's Law pace. And it's not simply, I used the example earlier on of transistors, which of course is Moore's Law, uh, what it's about. But the exact same curve, or better, is happening in telecommunications, in digital storage, in, gene uh, in genomics, um, and a lot of other areas. And all of that provides the entrepreneurial space that I man uh, mentioned. But it also um, uh, eliminates an awful lot of jobs. Any of us who use an ATM um, know what I'm talking about. That used to be done, obviously, by a person. Anybody who buys on the web, um, there used to be this thing called travel agents, so on and so forth. So um, the good news is that there's a huge space for innovation that is provided by these various curves. 
But what it takes is entrepreneurship and engineering imagination to take advantage of that to create the new jobs of the future. Um, there's no question that it creates new needs, which is what provides the opportunity. But in the end, it's a race between uh, entrepreneurial job destruction and creation. So that's sort of the, the game that you're engaged in. So if you accept my premise that the key to solving these problems is entrepreneurship, what can we do to encourage more entrepreneurship? Oh, I skipped something. Um, by the way, this, this phenomena of, um, of, this, uh, of, of the expansion in Moore's Law, of course, doesn't just affect us. It's affecting everybody. And while we think about the number of jobs that are moving to China in, in, uh, in the manufacturing segment, in China, they're now beginning to adopt advanced robotics, as we will. And um, so it's not simply a matter of... Um, of uh, you know, worrying about one country versus another, all these countries will be affected by the curves that I'm talking about and the resulting both opportunities and stresses. So what can we do to encourage more entrepreneurship? Well, frankly, you're part of it right here. This, this is the kind of program which I think does a good job of creating the sort of folks who should be out there creating new companies and new technologies. We certainly need to invest in education in general and in particular in science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, we need to retain and attract folks who are trained here in the United States, but who were born somewhere else. Um, the, the numbers over and over again at Burry and Deliage and Alta Partners were that 30% of the people we backed came from somewhere else. And uh, it's madness for us to be paying for the education of these folks and then not encouraging them to stay. So talk to your congressman. Um, we also need to continue to invest in government R&D. I can't tell you how many of the projects that we backed, especially on the life science side, have been a direct res a result of investments which were previously made through the university and other uh, institutions by NIH or various other government institutions, um, which then uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs are able to take advantage of. And, you know, one thing is that, and once that happens, what, what happens uh, frequently is the government then drops the ball. You know, they put out the money for basic R&D, but then they have no clue as to help turn that into companies that can actually grow. You know, in the moment, at the moment in the public conversation, there's an enormous amount of, of um, uh, praise for small companies. But you know, small companies are not really what it's about. What you want is small companies that will become big companies. Um, and so we need to think about how do you help those small companies to become big companies. And this allowing those companies to do a better job of working for the government during that intermediate period when they're doing R&D and so on can be a critical part of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, the mix. What I don't think it's about, although it dominates the public conversation at the, um, at the Washington level, is marginal tax rates. I personally, you know, the, the work that I did um, um, here at UC Berkeley was under Carter. Um, the Technocron work was also under Carter. Virtual microsystems um, was under Reagan. Um, Ask Jeeves was under uh, Clinton, and uh, a lot of the Gruner uh, venture stuff has either been under Bush or now Obama. I can tell you the marginal tax rates changed a lot during that period of time. I never once thought about it. Not once. And I don't think any other venture guy does either. 
So when, when people tell you that the key, a critical thing to encouraging entrepreneurship is marginal tax rates, I just don't believe it. And I don't believe it for, I think, a very good reason. Nobody who begins doing this is doing it because they're trying to save a few points of taxes. What they're trying to do is build something great, maybe make some money for themselves and their family and so on and so forth. But it isn't about marginal tax rates one way or the other. For so, a number of um, years now, work has been you might listen to this guy a little bit. Um, the there's another thing about working with engineers. A transmission um, that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo encabulator. Now, the point is the here is that this guy is making no is sense at all. Um, by the and when you work with engineers for long enough, sooner or later you come across engineers who are making no sense at all. And that, too, is an important element of working with engineers and helping to build companies. So with that, I will leave, it, uh, leave you with this. Please help make it happen. Thank you. And um, now, if anyone has any questions, I've got, what, another five minutes or so? Yeah, Great. Yes. You said that good projects can now take longer than the 10-year venture capital window. Can you please expand on that? And I mean, in terms of just thinking that much in the internet domain, tech domain, is on such a short window, what still, I mean, promotes VCs to invest in these longer time frame pr projects? Well... First of all, I, I, you know, I've identified a problem, but I don't necessarily have a solution. Um, it's not a good thing from a venture capital perspective that projects take longer, because what you ultimately want is high ROI for your investors. Um, so you know, things like social media and so on have had a very fast clock. You can get in them and get out of them in three or four years, and that's great. Uh, many of the things in the early days of venture capital had the same sort of profile. But it isn't the profile for life sciences, for sure. Um, it's not the profile for nanotechnology. It's probably not the profile for green tech, um, and, and so on. And so this is something that we're, the, the, the venture community is going to have to and is adjusting to. Uh, it partially has to do with you know, teaching the limited partners. Partially has to do with pricing. You know, it's, it means that if it's going to take longer, it means that the entrepreneur will, be able, will, will not be able to hold on to as much of it in order to get a reasonable return to the people who are providing the money. Um, but there isn't, you know, the right answer is figure out how to run the projects faster. In the absence of that, it's figure out how to get them funded um, uh, in a way which will allow them to, you know, uh, allow you to succeed. I will add one important point to this, which is that the, um, in the old days, if you will, the, the answer to this was that companies went public before they had revenues. So if you look at Genentech or you look at Chiron the, or Amgen, the, the early life science companies, um, they were able to sell themselves into a public market where the public now became the venture capitalist at a certain point in the chain. And um, that was an essential part of the venture capital formula. Um, that is essentially gone today. And reestablishing that is critical in terms of making this whole culture work as well as it can. Yes. Well, let me say that the, the question I'm always asking myself, although I don't sometimes, you know, we all have these rules and then you kind of ignore them periodically, but the, um, 
the, the thing I'm always asking myself is, is this person that's sitting across the table from me the best person to do the particular project that they're interested in? And if the answer to that question is yes, is it a quality project? And then do I believe that they actually can make it happen? So those are the, the three questions that I'm going through, regardless of what I'm asking you as we're talking about your, um, uh, about your project. And um, if it's a project, you know, if it sort of begins to pass those questions, well, then it might be a lot of time. Um, but I may also come to a conclusion on that in a very short period of time. It depends upon the situation and the people. But it does go to, you know, try to assemble the best team that you can, um, you know, because that's what the person on the other side of the table is thinking. Another question. Uh, so how do you go from having a problem that you identify that you want to solve to actually building out a prototype and the specs for exactly what you want the product to look like when you're starting a business? Well, uh, you know, there are many answers to that. Um, you know, you could have wealthy parents. That would help. Uh, the, um, since most of us don't, um, you can try to figure out how to do it very inexpensively, which I think is a very good idea. You can use the Technicron um, example that I gave you of try to figure out somebody who needs some portion of this that you can charge for the, for the privilege as you build up your prototype. You can try to raise money on just the idea itself, which is actually very common. Um, so raising seed money to be able to build a prototype. Um, you can do it on credit cards. Who knows? This is what, you know, as I say, entrepreneurs are people who make something out of nothing. The, the question is, how do you do it in your particular circumstance? So how do you conceive the prototype? What it is that you want to build? Um, well, you know, I don't think that, you know, that's got to come from you. Um, you know, that, that's when I, when I talked about um, the, you know, science fiction was sort of one thing that was an input for me. Public, you know, sort of watching the history of technology was another input for me. Um, being among customers was an input for me. That was part of the Technicron experience. Um, trade shows are very... A, a great tool for that because you see a vast array of things that people are doing and you can look for the white space, um, reading, of course, but in the end, that's what the entrepreneur is doing, is, is saying, over there is some white space and that's where I'm going to go. I was wondering if you had any hints or um, suggestions on through your um, three years of managing companies and managing people and then specifically managing engineers. Well, um, a, a few things. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's an interesting breed. Um, there are folks that you, um, there are some folks that are difficult to work with and some that are super easy. I tend to try to find the ones who are super easy. Um, the, um, but, you know, a really good engineer can oftentimes be worth 10x somebody who's, you know, just a, a sort of garden variety, if you will. And in those circumstances, you have what I, sort of, what I call rock star management. You, know, you may have to put up with an awful lot of, of um, uh, foibles or whatever in order to help that person be, be successful. Um, in general, I've actually found engineers to be pretty reasonable people. And, um, the, uh, and I have learned an awful lot over the years in you know, sort of the dialogue back and forth with folks who, who think this way. And as I said in, in my initial remarks, I actually hope that more engineering people get involved in public policy because I think that our public conversation, 
would benefit a lot from the sort of rigorous thinking that you get from really understanding systems and understanding how things work. Maybe one more question. Yes. Uh, oh. so, so you I think over the years I've sort of learned how to learn, um, especially about technical, you know, technical propositions. Um, so, um, you know, which of course can be can be dangerous. You know, periodically you you convince yourself that you know more than you actually do, but um, you know, it's a skill to to figure out. What are the things that, you know, you have to begin knowing that you're never going to actually understand the details of what is being proposed. Um, but hopefully you learn the things that matter about what's being proposed. Um, and, and by the way, probably a lot of you eventually are going to be engineering managers. And you're going to find that you don't understand it either. That, you know, there comes a moment when you used to really know what was going on on the bench. You knew what you'd built in your first product or what have you. Um, but, you know, now you're, you know, you, you're in, the, in the, the management level and you're finding that you've got to make decisions about the difference that makes a difference or the key factors or what have you rather than actually understanding that, those lines of code or, you know, how that board is, how that board is laid out or any, whatever the details turn out to be. Um, so, it's a process of learning how to learn. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.